Tante Bojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips bringing you weekly check-ins and interviews with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community in southern Manitoba and across the country. Welcome to Season 2.2, Winter Semester 2018. we got about a dozen interviews lined up for you this semester with some amazing voices in the creative and academic sectors of the Indigenous intellectual community. We're going to lead it off right here at home at the University of Manitoba with Indigenous graduate student and Métis woman Kathleen Wilson. She's in the Master's Program, Peace and Conflict Studies, the joint program between the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg. Back in October, Kathleen was one of the co-organizing chairs of the annual International Peace and Conflict Studies Graduate Student Conference, Peace Without Borders. It was a two-day event held between sites at the University of Manitoba and at the University of Winnipeg where folks across the discipline came together to discuss the theoretical and practical implications of peace building and conflict resolution, that work being done by graduate-level researchers in the academy. Kathleen presented. I had a chance to check her out and her work where she talked about the praxis of theoretical explorations of peace and conflict studies in indigenous communities. It was a fascinating conversation. We talk about that. We talk about being a graduate student today, an indigenous graduate student today in a joint program, uh, what it's like to work in peace and conflict studies, a department buoyed up by the contributions of Arthur Morrow, who made another substantial gift to the University of Manitoba this past semester as well as talking to Kathleen about how to carve out space, indigenous space in peace and conflict studies, and to amplify indigenous voice. Kathleen is super smart, and we're so happy to have her kick off this year's edition of At the Edge of Canada. This is Kathleen Wilson on At the Edge of Canada. So what is that as an as an indigenous graduate student in a joint master's program between Mm -hmm. two sometimes rivaling universities? Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? Um, Well, I generally find when you have sort of like two elephants in the room, which is exactly what a joint master's program is, uh, they just sort of um, they they fight for space. So when you talk about specifically as it pertains to being an indigenous student, the conversation shifts from the students to how the institutions are managing the students. Mm. And I think that sometimes that can be um, a little bit disheartening because obviously that's not what the focus should be. Um, And then also you end up comparing how they both handle the students and how they both do that. And so even yourself, you stop focusing on your own needs, focusing on your own challenges, and you start instead looking at how the institutions are dealing with them. And then you can end up in that sort of exactly contrary and sort of mindset where you're, you want to fight against it. And, and sometimes it's valuable and sometimes 
uh, it's just a real suck of energy. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The interdisciplinary and sometimes inter-university programming can get a little complex with the administrative component. And I'm mm-hmm. always curious how students feel like they sit when they belong to two separate entities <clears throat> at the same time. Well, certainly with this program in particular, about 90% of it is at the U of M. So, I mean, despite the fact, the joint connection, from my perspective anyway, has been really more about resources. So how many, you know, how many minds can you access? How many books can you access? Uh, how many grants can you access? It's not so much about um, necessarily benefiting from, I guess, institutional structure. It's, re- it's really about the resources. Mm-hmm. So, and the interdisciplinary nature of it can be really complicated and complex as well. And there's a lot of, you know, everybody speaks the word inclusive constantly um and then in, in my field that's sort of jacked up to a point where it can become a little bit abstract and then it's not really inclusive hmm. yeah so peace and conflict studies is an interesting program in in the university of manitoba and the university of winnipeg because it's mm-hmm. housed in the faculty of graduate studies which mm-hmm. typically isn't the host for a department or a graduate program but in this case peace and conflict studies seems to fit in there mm-hmm. and what makes the gears of industry work in the peace and conflict studies is arthur morrow and his donations and mm-hmm. support of the program arthur just recently made a donation to the university of manitoba for five million dollars talk talk tell us a little bit about what Arthur Morrow's influences on the Peace and Conflict Studies Department and how you understand Peace and Conflict Studies to exist uh, at the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg. Um, well, as you said, like it, it just it wouldn't be possible without him, and um, and he's the namesake for the structure in which we function at the University of Manitoba. But I think the whole goal of our field is to find spaces where we can support other people and create those connections and decrease marginalization and really like just get a conversation with as many people as possible. And he has been able to facilitate that uh, in many ways, both within our program and just at the university level in general. And I think that that type of behavior really embodies what Peace and Public Studies uh, would hope for the people who study and the people who get to be part of the program. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I would say specifically... Uh, Peace and Conflict Studies, as I mentioned, it it sits uniquely inside of the Faculty of Graduate Studies at the University of Manitoba, but more broadly across the country, Peace and Conflict Studies as a discipline goes by, I find, a number of different names. Out out East, I've heard it fit underneath Global Development Studies. Uh, Out West, I've heard it uh, understood as, you know, international development and cultural Mm -hmm. relations. Um, mm-hmm. How does peace and conflict studies? Ha- what what kind of discipline is that? And and what do you, what do you do in peace and conflict studies? What do you research, in your own words? <laughs> That's a really great question. Actually, I have to say I'm kind of impressed with that. Um, that that comes up a lot in our field. Yeah, peace and conflict studies does go under many titles, and even within peace and conflict studies at U of M, that conversation comes up pretty early on. What is peace and conflict studies, and why don't we go by another name? Even the idea of like um, defining yourself within the field. So, are you a peacekeeper, a peace builder, a peacemaker, a peace practitioner? Like, there's words and terms in academia in general, but really in our field, especially because it can incite conflict, are mm-hmm. really, really important. Um, I think this is my perspective. So, yeah, in my own words. The reason why we're peace and conflict studies and not something maybe more specific like global relations or 
um, I remember when I started telling people I was taking peace and conflict studies, they wanted me to define it like, well, is it political science? Mm. Or are you studying the international relations? Right. Like they really wanted to relate it to structures. And I think we are in many ways inclined to view peace as like a, struct- a structural issue, and we should, but not necessarily a formal structural issue like in the political arena, for example, or even defining it using borders by calling it, you know, international or global. In peace and conflict, what you're, what you're studying really is you're, you're doing peace studies and you're doing conflict studies. And conflict studies can range from huge, like, macro-conflict issues, like international or global issues and, you know, and those types of subjects. But it can also be very sort of micro-level. And, like, in my research, personally, I study a lot of structural violence and intergenerational trauma. And those in themselves are conflicts, both, like, internally within the people who have to experience them, as well as on a global scale or on on a bigger scale, community level scale. Mm. And then the peace component, um, sometimes people bring that peace component in where they want to talk about how people in different communities and spaces can create peace within those communities. But again, that can transfer also internally. How to, The last work I did was this emancipatory model for Indigenous women and like looking at how expectations affect us and then how to move forward from that. Mm. So the beautiful thing about the field and what I've always respected about it is that it's um, it's designed to allow that individual who's studying that subject matter to define it for themselves and to, to build their own context around the theories. Hmm. Yeah. I've always understood peace and conflict studies since coming to the University of Manitoba mm-hmm. as the research and theoretical conceptualizations and abstraction of mm-hmm. sites of contestation and mm-hmm. how those sites of contestation manifest positive and negative outcomes and mm-hmm. how can peace theoretically and broadly construed mm-hmm. work to facilitate or work to um, rehabilitate some of those outcomes. And, mm-hmm. and in that, in that logical point of contestation, that could be anything from yeah. physical and violent altercation to something like you pointed out, which mm-hmm. is structural and systemic, mm-hmm. like land claim or mm-hmm. indigenous health mm-hmm. or child welfare. And mm-hmm. in those um, policy and sometimes judicial frameworks, peace and conflict studies can exist and can make important contributions for health outcomes for, for you know, you know, folks who, who find themselves near these sites. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's critical because I think that that structural component um, and that like structural violence, you know, at large as an umbrella term um, is very insidious mm. uh, and it's almost invisible. And if you don't have people who are actively studying and pointing those things out and highlighting them and not even necessarily studying because I mean, peace, peace you know, practitioners or peace builders within any community can be anybody. But I think there is space for that academic field to sort of say, you know, there's this community of people and they're feeling really oppressed or they're, and they're really, really struggling and they're trying to find a voice. Why are they struggling? Why are they trying to voice? How are they trying to find a voice? And, and looking into those details, I think that there's peace and conflict studies makes room for that. And I think that's such a critical component to, um, to, to finding peace and, or reconciliation or whatever term you want to use for that. One of the spaces that Peace and Conflict Studies as a Discipline provided, which you were a lead organizer on, mm-hmm. uh, was the 
International Peace and Conflict Studies Graduate Student Conference, the second annual gathering of uh, graduate research focusing on peace and conflict studies held by the Peace and Conflict Studies Student Association uh, in between the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg back in October. It was called Peace Without Borders. And what really that space provided for me, Kathleen, before Mm -hmm. I get you to talk a little bit about the administrative component that you were working on, Mm-hmm. was bringing together all of these really unique perspectives on sites of contestation mm-hmm. uh, throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your panel specifically, there was all different. T- I-, I went there to hear uh, uh, conversations uh, by and about indigenous folks. But all of a sudden there was this huge conversation going about, uh, you know, post-colonial African situations on yeah. the continent. And and I, that's not what I was expecting. And so that's what I think I mean by these like really unique and colorful sites uh, of conversation about sites of contestation. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, it's funny because I I. I organized that with uh, with my colleague, colleague uh, Matthias, and uh, he's the president of our student association this year. And um, but I wasn't on the panel for organizing actually what the structure of the conference was going to look like and who was going to be on what whichever panels. We had a, a subcommittee for that. And so, like you, I came in. I mean, I had seen the lineup of of individuals, and and uh, I came in, and I wasn't sure what the conversation was going to be. And it's interesting because those conversations sometimes can be a bit disheartening if I feel like, you know, the subject matter that I want to discuss or that I think is important doesn't really get that sort of roundtable discussion. But then mm. at the same time, there is always, I always have that lens. And I, I took so much out of that conversation. I and mean, even in the way that it was held and, and the people who were given the opportunity to speak versus the people who didn't have a voice in that space, um, I thought that was really interesting and, and peace and conflict is like that on all levels and especially the international component it just you're you're meshing so many different cultures and views and and uh formal behavior uh that it's uh it can be really fascinating sometimes difficult but really interesting one of the conversations that happened in the Q&A portion which was a panel surrounding indigenous peace building as it was built mm-hmm. was a debate between it appeared to me, and what uh, by the identification of the of the panelists, that they mm-hmm. were they were African, and what mm-hmm. they were argu- what they were arguing about was whether or not you can subvert uh, mm-hmm. colonial superstructures uh, in in advance of uh, Native Afrikaners if you're speaking English, and mm-hmm. that was a really tense conversation yeah. for a room full of people speaking English, and basically the the, the protest was is. Are we really doing anything if we're just doing this in English? Yeah. And, and that was a really interesting point of retrospection because mm-hmm. can you talk about peace building in a non-peaceful like language situation? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting topic. And actually, uh, Red Rising's issue is, uh, is actually a language issue, and I'm really looking forward to reading it because I think uh, that conversation is totally valid. I mean, we... we we sort of started this discussion talking about language and how um, how loaded it can be. And, and when you talk about trying to redefine society or decolonize, if you want to use that very highly contested word, if you if you want to say that, can you do that when you're still using the language of the oppressor? Um, you know, personally, I, I, I think a lot about it, and I, I'm about as conflicted internally as that conversation was in that room. That's kind of how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the indigenous language uh, uh, 
edition for Red Rising will be coming out soon, I hope. So the title of your particular paper was The Merits of Considering the Spherical Cow, mm-hmm. Weaving Together Peacebuilding Theories in the Context of Violence Against Indigenous Peoples in mm-hmm. Canada. Give me the elevator speech of that paper. Uh, so the elevator speech of that paper is that um, I love theory. I've always <laughs> liked it, which is why I titled it The Spherical Cow, because it's uh, one of my favorite theories. It's just an absurd uh, it's an absurd concept and there's a joke that goes with it which if you heard the beginning of my speech you know I don't do very well so I'm not going to say it again Um, but uh, my idea was to just bring some of my theory and and I I started with a non-Indigenous theory I wanted to talk about uh, the moral imagination by John Paul Lederach but I wanted to bring that Indigenous lens to it to say okay so there there are these theories and they're really uh, amazing and you can transfer them from context to context but um, I just want to remind you that some of these theories have existed for many, many years beyond this individual coming and highlighting it. And so that's why it was important to bring in, in the peacekeeping circles, because they, they just weave together so beautifully. And, uh, and it shines a light on some of the things that Indigenous communities have been doing for, for a long, long time that sometimes get missed because they're not packaged the same way as other theories. Mm. So I wanted to bring the theory. I wanted to talk about that trans context kind of ability of theory and uh, and then do so by incorporating the lens that's really important to me. One of the notes, or you seem to put your finger on a crucial pressure point or intersection mm-hmm. about the difference between theories of peace building mm-hmm. with and for Indigenous communities in Canada and the praxis Mm-hmm. of theories of peace building when we go from talking about it to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see your own work sitting in that spectrum? Well, I think that uh, my philosophy on life, we, we talked a little bit earlier um, about how I, how I view things, and it's always a very relational level. So it can be personal relationships. It can be um, relationships that I have within the structures within which I function. Mm-hmm. And I try my best to incorporate that theory into the practice of my everyday life within those relationships. Mm. Like I'm just hyper aware of that, and studying allows me to put even more um, more of that into practice because mm-hmm. I become I gain that additional awareness and I gain extra strategies. And uh, one of the one of the steps that's it's in peacemaking circles, but highlighted in more general way in John Paul Lederach's work is that um, in order to find peace, you need to function within ambiguity. And for me, it's very difficult to function. I think actually for most people, it's very difficult to function with ambiguity. We are, we are, most people are really committed to finding the binary and then choosing a side. Mm-hmm. And I think my work is about recognizing the binaries and acknowledging them and then and then functioning within that ambiguity and being creative about it um, and just being caring, as, as caring as you can, because you, need, you can't always, for me anyway, you can't, you can't really move forward if you don't branch and weave with other people. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if that still really kind of sounds like a theoretical concept, but for me it is a very physical, lived, everyday experience. 
It does sound like something from a theoretical point of view that I might call empathetic relativism. Uh, empathetic to yourself, be okay mm-hmm. with that relativism, but also empathetic for uh, points of view that may be more absolutist and mm-hmm. in that it is a theory or a praxis for peace building. One of the spaces you draw on for intellectual support and cultural support on this are indigenous theories and nation-specific indigenous theories of peace building. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you carve out space for indigenous vocalizations in peace and conflict studies? How do I personally carve space or how does peace and conflict studies carve space? Whatever whatever point of view makes it more comfortable to answer. Um, Well, my tone is going to change for this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So peace and conflict studies exists within is a structure itself uh, it exists within another structure actually two because we're a joint program um that exists within another structure uh which is our, our government system and the way that our, our country runs and um because of that i am i'm a little bit pessimistic and i'm inclined to say that the way that we incorporate we so our structures the way that uh, that Indigenous voices are incorporated uh, is still sort of, um, it's almost like a token, like, okay, we're going to be inclusive, and then we're going to give this grant. Like, I think it was last year I received a a grant uh, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, gave me some money. And and I'll take the money. I'm happy to take the money. But at the same time, it, it really had that feeling of, you're giving me this because you're doing your due diligence. Mm. Not because you really care about what I have to say necessarily, mm. and I sometimes find that 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 that's that's what it feels like in a classroom when, for example, uh, on the last day of class and you know in a course they decide to talk about oh well and this is how uh, how indigenous um, indigenous subject would fit into this this idea or this is the theory or this is the lens that we can just kind of touch on quickly in order to give that space. And, I, and I, I find similarly when it comes to feminist issues that that happens as well. Like you can have a whole course on human rights and it'll run for six, you know, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then we have like a half an hour where we talk about, oh, these are just specific uh, human rights as they relate to women. Hmm. So it, it never really feels like it's a fully fleshed out thing or thought out or really committed to it. It always just feels like, let's give you your minute because, because maybe you earned it. Hmm. So they sometimes struggle a little bit with that, um, with that idea. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, as a as a Métis person, I'm certain mm-hmm. that your contributions are essential. And as you mentioned, you're carving out space in this in this area uh, mm-hmm. where maybe the the landing pad isn't fully developed for where and how that can work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I find that really compelling. In your in your mind. Mm-hmm. What field do you think your research will be best utilized? Is that going to be in law? Is that going to be in policy? Is that going to be in politics? Is it going to be uh, in, in in theoretical abstraction? Where do you see mobilizing your work to make the most sense as a graduate student in peace and conflict studies? Um, to answer that question, we would probably need about two or three hours. Perfect. We got two or three minutes. <laughs> Okay, two or three minutes. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's difficult to answer that question without giving context to who I am as a Métis person. How about um, so, how about then? Yeah. How mm-hmm. about in your mind, where is um, one place you'd like to see it go then? One one mm-hmm. field you'd like to see it mobilized in? Uh, I 
if I could choose one place to see it mobilized, and I, I would really like to see, um, I would really like to see Métis women in my generation find a space of peace with their own identity hmm. and feel like they have a voice in whatever whatever room or whatever structure or whatever re, uh, arena that they happen to find themselves in. I think there's a, a tremendous internal conflict with women who are in my position. Um, and again, that's why it's difficult to not bring the context of my own life into this discussion. Right. But um, I think that that's critical. And I, and I always bring the feminist lens to my work because I, well, not always, I didn't in that, uh, in that particular presentation that you came to, but about 95% of the time I bring that view to it because it's, uh, it's really important to me. But um, yeah, so that's what I would say. I would say that it's it's about um, about speaking to people who are having that uh, identity conflict due to, to their life experiences, and and hopefully connecting more of them. Yeah, and uh, and giving some peace and space to to people. Yeah, some of the strongest Métis thinkers that I and Métis female thinkers that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they find themselves at a starting point, and I hope f- for those who are listening that I'm not trying to to tell your own story, but I I do find that they they house themselves in a department, and then they mm-hmm. notice that maybe this department or this discipline isn't speaking directly to the needs of Indigenous women or even Métis women specifically in what they encountered, yeah. and they carve out their own space. Zoe yeah. Todd writing about fish cosmologies um, out at Carleton while being housed in sociology is a really curious, um, you know parallel to that or yeah, or, yeah. or Chelsea Vow who was trained in law now working in native studies around notions of identity and application so it, it, there is that wiggle room and I think you point to that really nicely yeah the wiggle room I, and that's it that's why when trying to answer that question it's uh it's not it's something that's always growing and and in my emancipatory model that I developed my my takeaway from that was that um you your life is your own narrative and if we try to define our lives using the expectations of other people, the expectations of time, and even our own expectations of who we should be based on our interactions, um, then then we are actually just maintaining a, that level of oppression. And so defining what this means for my future is something that I do very with a lot of trepidation and a lot of hesitation. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Graduate Student Conference happens annually in October, and I'm sure it'll be an awesome collection of graduate research next year as well. Kathleen, I'm going to get you out of here on this one. Mm-hmm. I ask all my guests this because I'm curious to know who you're reading and who you're into, but who would you say is your Indigenous intellectual crush right now? Kim Anderson. Yeah? Yeah. And how come? Oh, she just does an amazing job taking the voices of um, elders and spiritual leaders and incorporating them into her work. So she's, she's a theorist as well, but she makes sure to add that context every time uh, that she writes. And I, I, I read her book and it's just, when I read her writing, I just end up with pencil marks all over the page. My books are dog-eared because I find that she just brings insight beyond herself. So, I mean, she's my favorite writer, but in a weird way, she's almost more like a facilitator to other people's knowledge, which I think a really good writer should be. Mm-hmm. And uh, she facilitates that beautifully, and I'm tremendously appreciative for her work. 
Kim Anderson, one of the leaders in indigenous feminisms and indigenous masculinities, actually, as she mm-hmm. is championing the cause for theoretically studying uh, different uh, notions of indigenous gender and sexuality. So she was mm-hmm. actually here in Winnipeg this uh, this last spring uh, giving a presentation at the U Winnipeg. Kim's uh, an awesome contributor to the field. Yeah. Well, Kathleen, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And uh, for for everything you do in the name of Indigenous uh, resilience, peace building, uh, Indigenous influence, bringing Indigenous notions and theories and uh, representations of self into the academy and just being a rock star Indigenous woman yourself. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Trevor. Have a great day. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the OJ Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams for At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at TFillers. Up next, your campus today. I